Father in heaven, uh, we are so thankful to be worshiping you corporately this morning. Um, Lord, each of us has had a different week <coughs> from the next person. Um, Lord, uh, through all of our experiences, we can look back and see your faithful hand leading us through not only our week, but the last months, years, even in those times, Lord, when we doubt you, Father, we can look back and see that indeed you were faithful because your track record of faithfulness is 100%. And so, Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning and as we uh, catch a vision of you in this section of the Old Testament, Lord, that your spirit would come and do your spiritual massage work on stony hearts. Lord God, do your work of pouring in consolation, encouragement, comfort. Lord, draw someone to your beauty this morning is our prayer. And thank you, Lord, for your word, which is life and a lamp. And Lord God, we pray, as Jennifer prayed, that we would not leave here the same as when we came in the door. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty, powerful name. Amen. It was a tremendous time of rousing worship. The people sang their hearts out, and there was dancing, and there was great joy. God was praised, and God was magnified because God had done great things for his people. He had done the impossible, in fact. He had carved out a path, imagine it, carved out a path through the Red Sea so that his people could pass over. And then he had closed those same walls of the Red Sea so that their enemies drowned. There was no one like Yahweh, majestic in holiness, doing wonders, redeeming, and delivering, overthrowing his adversaries. His people praised his holy and mighty name. They worshipped. And they wanted to remain on that mountaintop of worship. They wanted to remain there basking in worshipful joy over what God had just done but their leader said no. Exodus 15.22 says that Moses made Israel, note that word, he made Israel set out from the Red Sea. He made them move now from their time of ecstatic worship from their time, perhaps, of triumphantly and victoriously plundering the corpses of the defeated Egyptians, he made them move on from that now to something new. The people were not eager to move away from their time of worship, but Moses made Israel, set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. 
So friends, notice the movement here in the book of Exodus. The people of God go from redemption, from being set free from Egypt by the mighty hand of God, straight into the wilderness. Notice this. The wilderness comes right after redemption, but the wilderness comes before their arrival in the promised land of Canaan. So the pattern here then is redemption, wilderness, and then later on, final arrival in the land. The people who had just been having their bombastic time of worship now find themselves in the wilderness. And verse 22 says that they went three days in the wilderness, three days, imagine it, three days in the wilderness, and found no water. Now, we have to imagine walking in a blisteringly hot desert climate. Imagine that, walking in that climate with your children and your animals in tow for three days. And whatever water you had at the start of your journey was now running dangerously low. And you're aware that at least some of your fellow travelers have run out of water altogether. And there's no supply of water in sight. Everywhere you look, it's just the parched, dusty desert. This would be a very serious problem, a problem that would tend to cause panic, in fact. No water. But then off in the distance, as you're walking through the parched, dusty desert, off in the distance, your eyes catch sight of some springs. And it's no mirage. Those are actual springs in the distance. And so now your pace quickens, little spring in your step, because you know that now you'll be able to fill your water skin again. And as you see those springs, you drink the last half cup of water that had been remaining, that you had been saving, that you had been rationing, and now you sprint to the springs. Verse 23, the people came to the springs. When they came to Merah, there's water they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. Now, talk about dashed hopes. Their hopes had fastened on that water at Merah, but now they discover that the water is undrinkable. However thirsty they might be, and they were thirsty. This water at Merah is simply unfit for consumption, most likely due to a very high level of salt. And if they had started to panic a little bit before, be before they had discovered these springs, now they're really panicked. 
There's some wordplay in this 23rd verse. Notice this 23rd verse. The word mera means bitter. Some of us might remember that word from the time that we spent recently in the book of Ruth. In Ruth 1.20, Naomi had asked people to call, to call her Mara. Why? Because she said the Lord had dealt very bitterly with her. The word Mara means bitter. And in our verse, there are four instances, four instances of this word in the original Hebrew. Literally, the verse reads as follows. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was Merah, bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. So here were these people fresh out of a time of sweet worship, now faced with bitter water. Here are these people freshly delivered by God's hand out of peril, in Egypt, now suddenly faced with a new life-threatening peril, this disgusting, undrinkable water. These were the same people, remember, the same people who had heard Moses promise them that they were heading to a land flowing with milk and honey, right? In Exodus 13, 5, Moses had promised that, and he was repeating the promise, of course, that God himself had made earlier in the story. A land flowing with milk and honey, Moses? Right now, we are stuck in the desert about to die unless we find water. And we found water, but it turned out to be a cruel trick. We can't drink it. Friends, the end of verse 22 and then verse 23 present us with Israel's first trial in the wilderness. Their first trial, traveling for three days, finding no water, and then finding water, which turns out to be unfit for consumption. Now listen, as believers in Jesus Christ, how many of us are believers in Jesus Christ? Say an amen. Amen. As believers in Jesus, you and I are in the wilderness years right now. We have been redeemed. We have been delivered mightily. We have been saved and forgiven. Our Red Sea moment is behind us. But we are not yet at our final destination. Amen? We are not yet resurrected. At least last time I checked, none of us are resurrected and living on the new earth with Jesus. We are in the in-between time, in the wilderness years. And in these wilderness years, I want you to listen carefully, we face our maras. In this life, we come up against bitter experiences. Are you with me this morning? We come up against 
And if you haven't lived long enough, eventually you're going to come up against a bitter experiences. Experiences where we find ourselves suddenly at the end of ourselves, gasping and perhaps panicked, sad, disoriented, despairing. Now, some of you are facing a mirror right now. And perhaps others of us can look back and we can identify, for sure, we can identify mera moments that we have walked through either recently or in the distant past. Or, or perhaps, unbeknownst to us, there is a mera moment that is coming. God has made it clear that we should not be surprised when mera moments come at us in this wilderness pilgrimage, didn't Jesus guarantee, he guaranteed, it's not too strong a word, he guaranteed that in this world, we will have tribulation, John 16, 33. Hasn't God briefed us on the fact that we shouldn't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us to test us as if something strange was happening to us. 1 Peter 4.12. And, and hasn't God made it clear to us in Philippians 1.29 that it has been granted, notice, it has been granted to us not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. As believers, we should not be surprised when we come to our meras in these wilderness years. And when we do come to our meras, friends, we will be wise to practice the lessons that God teaches us in our text. So let's go further into our text. Verse 24. When faced with their trial at Merah, how did the people respond? And the people, say, say the word, grumbled, yeah. Frowns appeared on their brows, on their faces, a, a, a kind of angry desperation took hold of their hearts. The, the same people who only three verses earlier, three verses earlier, had been singing and praising with Miriam about the glorious triumph of Now they grumble here at Merah. God's astonishing power in the plagues that he had sent on their enemies. These same folks grumble over this undrinkable water. These same people who had seen with their own two eyes, they had just seen God cleave into a large body of water so that they could walk on the seabed unharmed and escape from the pursuing army, these same people grumble. How soon 
we forget the past faithfulness of the Lord when we come up against our marrows. How soon we walk by sight and not by faith when a mara shows up in our lives. And my friends, I hope, I hope that as we look together at this text, we see it as a mirror, like we're looking in a mirror, we see it as a mirror of ourselves. We are very much like the Israelites, amen? Grumbling at our mirrors. Now, watch this. Not only do the Israelites grumble here, they grumble in a certain direction. They grumble against Moses. Isn't that interesting? Now, we need to point out that all through Exodus 13 and and Exodus 14, so the chapters that are just prior to our chapter, through those chapters, God has been leading. God has been leading the Israelites around the area by the pillar of fire and cloud, right? So we can safely say that ultimately it was God who led the people by his servant Moses to this place called Merah. God led them here. God brought them to this bitter, undrinkable water. Why? Because God was going to get glory out of this. And God was going to benefit his people by it. Although they didn't know that yet. God led them here, but they unleashed their grumbling on Moses. Now why go after Moses here, people of God? Why direct your stuff at your leader. The question here is, was the salt content in the water the fault of Moses? Was it in the power of Moses to quickly find them an alternative water supply out of thin air? Or did Moses possess the ability to miraculously transform this undrinkable water into drinkable water? Did did he have that power in him? Was Moses able to manufacture brand new water? Why direct your grumbling at Moses? I really appreciate what Charles Spurgeon said here when he preached on this text. Spurgeon puts his finger on part of what we so often do as human beings Spurgeon said this, listen to this. In our heart of hearts, our rebellion, our grumbling, is against the Lord himself. But we have not quite honesty enough to rail against God openly and avowedly. And so we hypocritically cover up our repining against him by murmuring against some person, occasion, or event. And then Spurgeon says, they complained in their hearts really against God, but they added to this the hypocrisy and the injustice 
availing their murmuring against the Most High by an unjust and clamorous complaint against his servant Moses. Yes, indeed. Inside, they had issues with God, but they couldn't bring themselves to express that openly. And so Moses becomes the target of their grumbling. And they say to Moses, I think, probably with some bitterness in their voices to match the bitterness of the water. They say, what shall we drink? How did they say that? The text doesn't really tell us, but I wonder if it was, what shall we drink? Here we are in this dry desert. We're three days in. No more water in our pouches, kids crying, animals failing, and now we have this lovely saltwater oasis. What shall we drink, Moses? You want to give us an answer? This is your problem, Moses. Friends, how bitter we can become. Listen, how bitter we can become when we face bitter providences. How soon we forget the past faithfulness of God when we face our bitter maris. Israel had forgotten God's faithfulness so soon. They had forgotten, forgotten God's faithfulness. They were ignoring it. They, they had this odd amnesia here at Merah. Now, listen, one chapter ago, so Exodus 14, one chapter ago, when Israel faced a different water problem, okay, a far greater life-threatening water problem, what had happened? Well, listen to these words from Exodus 14, verses 21 and 22. This explains what happened when they faced their water problem. The Lord, Yahweh, drove the sea back Water went back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, I ask you, if the Lord had solved that other water problem, that great water problem, in Exodus 14, could he not now solve this water problem in Exodus 15? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? When we face our meras, when we face our bitter experiences life, we must, friends, recall the past faithfulness of God, you look back and you say, wow, God was faithful here, 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 here. I've got a few more days here, 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 here. We look back at the past faithfulness of God and we look at the power of God and how he worked things out and this is an avenue to hope in our current bitter experience. The people ask their question, what shall we drink? And now notice Moses. I love this. He doesn't even dignify their question by giving them an answer. Instead, what does he do? The response of Moses, oh, listen, friends, the response of Moses at Merah is to fall on his knees and pray to God. That's it. 
fall on his knees and pray to God. Verse 25. There it is. And he cried to the Lord. How do we respond to our maras? Is, is it almost sort of a knee-jerk reaction in us? I mean, I mean think, think about it, okay? Going through a really bitter, hard time. Is it almost a, a knee-jerk reaction in us to, to quickly grumble, complain, express resentment like the Israelites did? And, and when we do that, what do we show? We show that we have a kind of practical atheism. <laughs> That's really what that is. When something shows up in our life that knocks us out of the realm of control that we thought we had over all things, does a bitter root begin to emerge? Or, when faced with our mera, will we fall on our knees? That's our knee-jerk reaction. Fall on our knees like Moses. Nowhere else to go but God. My friend, I ask you, do you see your merits as opportunities to believe God, to depend on God, expecting God to work? Had God not brought these people out of Egypt? Yes or no? Yes. Had he not promised their arrival in the land flowing with milk and honey? Yes, he had. Could he not then be trusted to bring them through Merah. Has, has God not saved you, Christian, by the blood of Jesus Christ? Has he not promised you a resurrected body living eternally with your king on the new earth? Yes? Well, can he not then be trusted to bring you through all of your Merahs, all of your bitter experiences? Moses cried to the Lord, which is the very thing that the Israelites should have done but failed to do. And then watch what happens here. Watch this. When Moses cries out to the Lord, what does the Lord do? The Lord responds immediately and decisively. Notice? The Lord is highly responsive here. He shows Moses a log. <laughs> Isn't this interesting? Of all the things that the Lord might have done in this situation, he shows Moses a log. Or depending on the translation that you have, the Lord shows Moses a tree or even a piece of wood in some English translations. Now, just a couple of things here. First of all, the verb here, the verb, the action word in the original Hebrew is very interesting. The ESV translates it as showed, which is uh, legitimate translation for, for sure, but the word has the sense of instruction, teaching. The Lord instructed Moses concerning this piece of wood. The Lord taught Moses what must be done with this piece of wood. Moses is obedient. Moses threw the piece of wood, notice, into the bitter water of Merah, Splash. And what happened? And the water became sweet. 
miraculously, suddenly, divinely, the undrinkable water now becomes wholesome and drinkable as soon as the wood splashes into it. God worked rescue here, didn't he? For his thirsty and grumbling people. Now notice something interesting in the text of Exodus. God does the reverse here for Israel. He does the reverse of what he had done to Egypt in Exodus chapter 7. In Exodus 7, wood touched water. God directed Moses to strike his wooden staff on the water of the Nile, but in that case, wood on water did what? It transformed drinkable water into undrinkable water. The water for the Egyptians, we remember, had turned to blood. The Nile turned to blood when wood touched water. God reverses things here for his freshly redeemed people. Now wood on water makes what was undrinkable to be drinkable. And please notice something about this piece of wood here at Merah. Notice this very important fact. Think through this with me. Don't miss the fact that this piece of wood was sitting there before Israel ever showed up at this place and got into trouble. You see that? The piece of wood was already there. God had this log sitting there before Israel ever came to Merah. God had it sitting there long before Moses ever cried out to him about the water. It was already there. And now God simply revealed this log to Moses. God directed the attention of Moses to the already existing log, and he instructed Moses what to do with it, and Moses simply obeyed. The point, friends, is this. I want you to listen. That the remedy for their bitter trial, the remedy, was already in place. It was already provided before they ever showed up, before Moses ever prayed, the piece of wood was waiting there, ready to be revealed to Moses, ready to be discovered by Moses, ready to be thrown into the water, ready to change the bitter water into sweet. The remedy was already in place before the trial. All it took was to activate, to activate the remedy in this case was what? Prayer. To quote Spurgeon again, and I love this, he says, God has a remedy for all our troubles before they happen to us. Amen. <laughs> God has a remedy for all our troubles before they happen to us. Nothing takes God by surprise. doesn't matter what you're walking through. It hasn't taken God by surprise. If there, he, uh, this is Spurgeon still. He says, if there be a bitter well, there is also the healing tree. <laughs> Typical Spurgeon. If there be a bitter well, there is also the healing tree. Now the last part of verse 25, which is far, as far as we'll go, uh, could have gone into verse 26, but we'll just end with verse 25. Last part reads, There the Lord Yahweh made for them a statute and rule, and there he what? Tested them. Did God lead Israel to Merah? You bet he did. There he tested them. When, now, when it says God tested his people, 
Of course, it's a reference to the fact that God did purposely lead his people here where this water was undrinkable. Why? So that they would run to him, right? That's, what, that's, that's the test. So that they would run to him, trust in him, have faith in him, fall at his feet, rely on him. The test was for their benefit, not God's. Would they humbly run to God in their extremity, depending utterly on him? Would they watch God work for them in this situation and thus be strengthened in their faith? Or, option B, at the sight of their mirror, would they grumble at their straits and become practical atheists walking by sight and not by faith. And friends, what will we do with our maras? That's the question. What will be the response of our hearts? God's test in this passage was designed to bring his people to a, a recognition of their utter dependence on him. Do you have that recognition this morning, how utterly dependent you are on God. This week I've been battling an infection. I'm still able to be here today, but it's not been easy, and it's a reminder of my mortality and the fact that I'm not the master of my own destiny. Are we utterly reliant on God? God wanted here to do what? To bring people to the end of themselves with no water, with no possibility of survival unless he intervened. That's what he wanted. One of the purposes of our severe trials of the maras that we face is to show us how needy we are. Are you a needy person this morning? How needy we are to break our self-reliance and to bring us to a place where we are depending on God. Our maras have a way of showing us that we are, in fact, God's and not our own. And if we have been pretending to be the masters of our destiny, uh, those illusions are shattered. We desperately, friends, need the Lord. Amen? What did the Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians 1? <laughs> I love this passage. He, he, he described himself and his colleagues. Listen to the word. This is the great Apostle Paul, right? He described himself and his colleagues as being utterly burdened beyond their strength. You've been there? utterly burdened beyond their strength and despairing of life itself. This is the Apostle Paul. Indeed, he says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul was describing what? He was describing a marrow moment there. A desperate situation that he found himself in. He had come to the end of himself the end of his capacity and his ability to handle things, utterly burdened beyond strength and despairing of life itself, feeling as if he and his friends had received the sentence of death. But then Paul says, what was the purpose of that despair and that burden and that weakness that he felt? He says in 2 Corinthians 1.9 that it was all to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, amen, who raises the dead. 
our mara moments come, friends, so that we will fall at God's feet and rely on him and depend on him and commune with him and hide in him like little dependent children and trust him. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though for ne- now for a little while, if necessary, you have been, what's the word? Grieved. It's an emotion word. Grieved by what? Various trials, various marrow moments, so that <laughs> the tested genuineness of your faith the tested genuineness of your trust in God, your dependence on God, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The final thing that we want to have ringing in our hearts as we go out from this place today is the goodness and the grace of God. Oh, taste and see with me that the Lord is good. The the people grumbled, which was really a grumbling against God, and God's response in grace to his grumbling people was to reveal to Moses the remedy, which was already sitting there, to rescue them out of their trouble. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. My friends, before, come back with me here, before the events of Genesis chapter one ever happened, that is before the foundation of the world, God thought of you, believer, And he thought of me. And in that moment before the foundation of the world, God, in his eternal counsel, put together two things. Number one, our sin and our rebellion, the wages of which is death. He put together our sin and rebellion with the second thing, the remedy. His son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross. Ephesians 1.4 says that as believers, get this, as believers, we were chosen by God when? Before the foundation of the world. You were chosen, believer, before the foundation of the world. To be what? To be holy and blameless before him. Revelation 13.8 says that the believer's name was written in the book of life when? Before the foundation of the world. God knew all about our birth into this world. God knew that we would be born in sin and that we would commit sins against him, that there would be this gaping chasm that would exist between his holiness and our rebellion. The relationship would be utterly broken. But God already had the remedy planned. The log was already lying at Merah. (laughs) Amen? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God would send his son, this is his plan, he would send his son to bear our sins. He would send Jesus to 
die on the tree so that our bitter situation would be transformed into sweetness. Forgiveness would be ours. Why? Because our substitute would die on our behalf. He would take chastisement upon him for whose sin? Our sin. Relationship would be restored because of the reconciling work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The cross is like the piece of wood thrown into the water of Merah, changing bitterness into sweetness. The cross is God's remedy that overturns the death sentence. The poison has been taken out of the water. The sting has been taken out of death. And we are assured, friends, aren't we? We are assured, hallelujah, that as we walk through our mera moments in this wilderness, these wilderness days, whatever it is, a, a cancer diagnosis, a family breakdown, fracture, estrangement, conflict at work, a divorce, loss of loved ones, financial collapse, addicted friend or family member. Whatever mera moment we face, we are assured that Jesus, the crucified and risen one, the suffering servant, will be there with us, never leaving us, never forsaking us, sympathizing as the suffering servant with our suffering, giving us sufficient grace for all our difficulty. And so with that good news, we circle back to where we began in this sermon, to a rousing time of worship. Praise God for giving us the remedy, his son, Jesus Christ. Taste and see that he is good. Let's go to prayer. Father in heaven, without you and your presence in our lives, the things that we experience would just be absolutely chaotic. They would seem futile. What else could we do but despair about some of the experiences that we have in this life? But Lord, your being there with us sweetly, powerfully, abidingly, is all the difference. Lord, I pray that for someone here today who perhaps does not know you yet, that they would see your sweetness, your glory, your beauty through this text that we have preached through the, through the worship time today. And Father, that they would come to know you before the day is out, trusting you for the forgiveness that you have provided at the cross, receiving you, your Holy Spirit. I pray that this would happen, Lord. Thank you for our time and worship today. In Jesus' name, amen.